Welcome back, everyone, for the last week of a season in the minors. We're studying the book of Habakkuk. And if you haven't met me, my name's Caleb. I'm the pastor here at our congregation. If I were to ask you, what makes a Lutheran a Lutheran? What would you say? Most of you know that our church is a Lutheran church. So what makes us unique? There's a thousand churches in this city. What makes us stand out in any way? You know, I've heard a lot of really bad answers to that question. Everything from, we're just a stripped-down version of Roman Catholicism, to you're just a bunch of people who like to drink beer. What makes a Lutheran a Lutheran? Uh, Well, I would submit to you the answer of what makes a Lutheran a Lutheran is we trust God's word above all else. We're not the only church that trusts God's word. We're not the only church that preaches the gospel. But what makes Lutherans unique is they trust God's word above all else. You could go to a church today that would trust God's word along with the words of a man who lives in Rome. And they would say those words are equal in power and value. Or you go to some other churches and they would trust God's word insofar as it makes sense to them, insofar as they can logically understand it. But that's not Lutherans. Lutherans trust God's word above all else. And probably a really easy way to show you how this works out is to talk about what we believe about the Lord's Supper. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said, this is my body, this is my blood. And because he said it is his body and is his blood, we believe that it is his body and is his blood. That his true body and blood are physically present with the bread and the wine when we take and eat and take and drink. Now, can I explain that to you? No. I have no idea how that works. God does a miracle every time that we say those words and eat that bread and drink that wine. But you know, one time I was having a a conversation with somebody and they they pointed right at that issue. That we believe something that doesn't make sense, that that we can't explain. I remember we were talking about the Lord's Supper and I said that, that the bread and the wine is present with Jesus, true physical body and blood. And they said, that doesn't make sense. That's impossible. And I said, exactly. So is walking on water. So is making food for 5,000 men, women, and children out of five loaves of bread and two fish. So is raising someone from the dead. So is rising yourself from the dead. Jesus is in the business of doing impossible things, things that we don't understand, things that we can't explain. So when Jesus says something, to be a Lutheran is to say, it may not make sense to me, I may not be able to explain it, but I'm going to believe it. But that's hard (laughs) because we're logical creatures, right? We try to make sense of things. And so when things don't make sense, we ask this question, why? Maybe you haven't asked it about the Lord's Supper, but you probably asked it about something in your life. Why, God? Why can't I be financially secure? Why can't I get a job or a job that I like? Why can't I find someone to spend my life with? Why can't we have another baby Why can't I beat this sin? Why don't my kids come to church? Why does the world seem so messed up? 
Why, God, why? Now, before we go any farther, we have to examine the question why a little bit, just like I did with the kids. There's two ways to ask this question, right? On the one hand, you can ask the question why because you're genuinely looking for information. But the other way that maybe we more often ask why, especially to God, is not because we necessarily want more information, but because we don't like the information that we've received. Now, if you grew up in church, the odds are you had a church experience where you were taught one of two things about asking God why. On the one hand, you maybe were part of a church where you were allowed to ask the question why, but only for that first reason. You're allowed to ask why for more information, but don't ask why just because you're angry at God or complaining. You have to treat him with some dignity. Your prayers have to sound nice. You can't just go raw to God and and say, why God, why? Or maybe you are part of a church where you couldn't ask why at all, neither for a rage against the machine reason or just an informational reason. You were told, just accept it. This is what the church says. This is what the pastor or the priest says. That's the end of it. And I want you to know that neither of those are biblical. Really what God says multiple times in his scriptures, especially if you read the Psalms, is that he wants you to ask why for both reasons. Ask why because you want information. Ask why when you're frustrated. Wrestle with God in prayer over this question, why? But then God does something when you come to him with this question. And you know why he does this if you've ever worked with or had children. Because when a kid comes to you and asks, why? Not to find information, but just because they're frustrated, you know that eventually you just have to say, because I said so. But your hope is that ultimately you would move them towards asking why for the first reason. Because you know that's productive for the relationship, that's productive for their life. If they keep asking why just because they're angry, they're going to get nowhere. But if you can move them to where they're asking why so that they can understand, they'll grow. And so what God does with us when we come to him with our whys is always try to move us towards a place where we are asking because we want him to speak. And that's why I think the book of Habakkuk is so wonderful. Because God is a great listener, but sometimes we're frustrated when he does speak. And so Habakkuk helps us wrestle with how to, how to reckon with God's words when they don't make sense to us, they're unexpected, or they're frustrating. So what we're going to do today is walk through the book of Habakkuk relatively quickly and get you into the historical context, understand what the book says, and then I want to make five applications to our life at the end today. So right at the beginning of the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk cries out to the Lord in prayer. In fact, the first two chapters of Habakkuk, if you read it along with us this week, are a conversation between God and Habakkuk. Habakkuk starts by saying, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So Habakkuk was writing at the probably the end of the 7th century BC, so the 600 area, 600 BC area. 
Uh, remember in our timeline, there's two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom gets conquered by Assyria in 722 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah is going to get conquered in 586 BC by the Babylonians. And so this is right before Babylon is going to come and conquer Judah. And Habakkuk has the same problem with Judah that, well, basically all the prophets we've studied in this series have. There's messed up worship, and that's causing injustice and the mistreatment of people, specifically people who are underprivileged. And so Habakkuk comes to God and says, God, I know you're a righteous God, and I know you don't like when people sin, and there's a lot of sin happening here in Judah, so what's the deal? It seems like you're not even paying attention, like you're quiet, like, like you're standing off at a distance. What's up? Well, God gives him an answer. It's a longer answer, but it's basically summed up in the first two verses of his answer, the next two verses, five and six. God says to Habakkuk, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm raising up the Babylonians, the ruth that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. So here's where God totally wrecks Habakkuk's expectations of the answer he's going to get, right? Habakkuk is looking for reform. Judah's messed up and it needs some help. God, would you step in and help us fix this problem? And God says, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll burn it all to the ground. It's a little bit of an overreaction, maybe you'd think, right? It's like if you're like a sibling and you come to your parent and you say, you know, he was doing this thing to me and your mom says, okay, I guess we'll just have to burn all his toys. Wow, that was not what I was expecting. But that's what God says. He, he says, I would, I'm telling you something that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm going to tell you something that if anybody who was not me, God, told you this, you would say, nah, not a chance. That's ridiculous. Now, why would this be so unbelievable to Habakkuk, that God would bring in the Babylonians to destroy Judah because of their wrongdoing. Well, he lists them in verses 12 to 17. We're not going to read those for the sake of time, but I'll summarize them for you. The first reason is Judah's messianic promise. Habakkuk knows what God has already prophesied, that the Savior of the world, the Messiah, is going to come through Judah's line. And so in his mind, Judah has to exist. It has to keep on existing until the Messiah comes. There's no way that you're going to destroy it. That makes no sense. And the second reason was Babylon's evil. Uh, Babylon made Israel, or Judah particularly, look like child's play. Now, you can look up in your own time what the Babylonians would do to people that they conquered, but it was horrific. Babylonians were bad people. And Habakkuk thought, okay, well, if we're bad, you know, that's bad, but why make more evil in order to conquer evil? What's the deal, God? This doesn't make sense. And so when, when God gives him this answer, it doesn't make sense to him, it frustrates him, and it's unexpected. And so Habakkuk comes back at God and basically says, God, I don't get it. That doesn't make sense to me. Why would you act like that? That does not seem like it fits with your character. But what Habakkuk does last in his answer to God is really important. And we get it at the beginning of chapter two, where he says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. Now, the ramparts would have been the highest part of a city wall. 
So if you were you know, a soldier or a watchman, you would stand on the rampart so you could see what was coming to the city, whether it's enemy or ally, etc. Now, his position, Habakkuk's position, was not to be a soldier on the wall. It was to be a prophet. And so his rampart is not necessarily the top of the city wall, but just a place of spiritual perspective. That's why he says, I'm going to stand at my watch. My watch is a prophet. I'm going to wait and hear what, the, what God says to me. I'm going to stand and listen to him. I'm going to get spiritual perspective. I'll look to see what he will say to me. And you know how this works if you've ever gotten into a heated argument with somebody or disagreed. You sometimes need to just step back a minute and think about everything that's been said. Let them try to restate. Let them try to say again so that you can understand what they were saying in the first place. Well, Habakkuk is doing that with God. And then God answers. Chapter 2, verse 2 to 4. The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So God comes to Habakkuk and says, okay, here's my answer. And it's going to be a good one. It's going to be totally true. And it's going to answer everything. Are you ready for it? Make sure you get something to write this down because we're going to want to pass this on. Do you have writing utensil in hand? Are you ready? Here it comes. I'm going to say it. And it's going to be really true and really helpful. And Habakkuk's like, yeah, uh mm -hmm, I'm ready. Anytime now, go ahead. God says, wait for it. The righteous will live by faith. That's it. If we were to put it more in colloquial language, I'm not going to tell you right now. But trust me. Because I said so. Now God continues with Habakkuk and he answers what is also Habakkuk's Habakkuk's problem, which is that the Babylonians are going to come and they're more evil. And God says, yeah, I'm going to conquer them too. But at the end of that whole explanation of how he's going to also conquer Babylon someday, God says this, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. There's an old hymn, one of the oldest hymns that we still have, that the church still uses today. Let all mortal flesh keep silent. It comes from this text. Here's what God is saying. I don't owe you an explanation, but here's what I'm asking you to do. Trust me. I'm in my holy temple. I'm doing my God thing. I'm in control of this. You just need to be silent. God is God, and you are not. Trust him. And you might be thinking, that's awfully convenient. <laughs> I mean, for a religion or a God to say, you know what? Just trust me. I don't have to explain myself to you. It seems awfully convenient. Maybe if he would explain himself to us, we would see the flaws in his logic. But thankfully, God has already proven himself trustworthy. This isn't the first time that God shows up and says, trust me. The whole scripture, the whole Bible is about God telling people to trust him and then showing himself trustworthy. Remember right at the very beginning of the Bible, when Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, what did God say? I can't fully explain to you what's going to happen if you eat from this tree, but you got to trust me. And then when they did, he said, I can't fully explain to you what it means that the, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, but you're going to have to trust me. 
and with Noah. I'm not, I'm not capable of actually fully explaining to you how I'm going to wipe out evil from the earth, but you're going to have to trust me and build a boat. Or Abraham, I can't fully explain to you how I'm going to let you have a son at age 100 and how that son is going to be the first in a long biological lineage that's going to lead to the savior of the world, but you're going to have to trust me. Or when he said, I can't fully explain to you what's going to happen when you leave your land, but I need you to leave. I need you to trust me. To Israel and Egypt, I can't fully explain to you what's going to happen when you paint blood on the doorposts of your houses, but you're going to have to trust me. And if you know those stories, every single time God came through. And Habakkuk knew that. That's why in the song that Habakkuk writes at the end of his book, he starts by saying this, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. In other words, God, I don't, this doesn't make sense to me and I don't particularly like it, but you've been trustworthy every time before. And so if you say because you said so, then I'm okay with that. Habakkuk says, when God speaks, even if it doesn't make sense, I trust him. And so Habakkuk finishes with these words, which are just wonderfully human. He says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. In other words, he said, I heard what you said, God. And honestly, I'm terrified. Honestly, that message with my worldview. Honestly, I feel like a little death is happening inside me, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait and let you do your God thing. I will wait patiently for what you said will happen to happen and for the impending conquest of Babylon because you said, God, because you said And so he then says in the next verse, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes in the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my savior. In other words, he sums it up like this. There's no figs and no grapes, which would have been a delicacy in figs and the thing that made wine. So kind of luxury items, right? And there's no fields for food, so I can't eat. There's no sustenance. And there's no cattle in the stalls, which cattle would have been like your investment portfolio, right? Your assets. In other words, if there's no luxury and there's even no food and I have no money, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Because that's all I need. Just his word. His word that promises to me that he will do what is good for me. That he has made a promise to me that somehow, some way, even if Judah gets completely destroyed, he is going to bring this Savior who is going to save me from death. Now, how can he say that? Because he knows the trustworthiness of God. So that's the book of Habakkuk. That's what it means. But let's make some applications. The first one I want to make is that you should believe God when he talks. Believe God when he talks. Um, on Friday night, I got an email from one of my former students at Luther Prep. Uh, she wrote me an email concerning something she saw on the internet 
that was questioning something we believe. And she said, is this true? Are we missing something? Is it possible that, that these words that, that God wrote down, that they were corrupted or, or we lost them or we made up new ones? On the one hand, I felt bad for her because that is Satan's first and most powerful temptation, isn't it? When, when Adam and Eve were in the garden and Satan showed up to Eve, do you remember the first words that came out of his mouth? Did God really say? Those things that God wrote down in the Bible, did he really say that or did he mean something else? Maybe it was culturally contextual. Maybe those words didn't get perfectly transmitted down through the generations. Did God really say Maybe it's a temptation that you've had to wrestle with. Did God really say? Did God really say that about how I manage my money? Did God really say that about what I do with my body? Did God really say about how I teach my children or about how I respect my governing authorities? Did God really say that I ought to sacrifice for the sake of my neighbor? Did God really say that I have certainty in my eternity with him? Did God really say that worship should be an every week thing? Did God really say the Lord's Supper is an essential part of the Christian life? We all wrestle with that question because Satan wants to bring that question on us. He would rather have us distrust God's word because he knows what Jesus said, that the word is truth and that it sanctifies us. What the author to the Hebrews said, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. He wants to destroy that foundation. So believe God's words. When you come to the scripture and you read something that's challenging, don't first think, how can this not be true? Think, how can it be true? And how can it be beautiful? How can it be beneficial? How can it be in line with what God has said about himself and about the gospel? Second, seek God's answers. That girl who wrote me an email, she was seeking God's answers. Um, But I find that many Christians don't do this. And they don't do it in one of two ways. Um, Either uh, Christians will have their set of facts that they know about their Christian faith, and then they will progress no further from that. I know what I need to know. I'm good. I'm just going to live my life. But that's not what God calls us to. There's a part in the Bible where the Bible tells us that the angels long to look into the things of the gospel. I mean, think about angels. First of all, they're way smarter than you, and they've been around a way longer time than you, and they still love looking into the gospel and learning more about it. Ought we not have the same attitude? But the second way that many people don't seek God's answers is to continue to seek the answers but then not use them. In other words, they'll gather a whole bunch of information. They'll go to Bible study and hear those words and take notes and and add it to their hard drive in their brain, but then they won't actually use that knowledge. Uh, My wife told me that this analogy would only work for a couple people in the congregation, so like a typical man, I'm definitely going to use it. Um, If you download a program on your computer or your phone, an app on your phone, How good is that program if you don't install it? It's great to have the knowledge. It's great to have the content. But if it does not become an operating principle of your life, it is useless. It's just taking up hard drive space. 
when we download the gospel, when we download knowledge from the scriptures, do we install it into our life? That's what Habakkuk had to do. He sought God's answers, didn't like them, but still sought to install them on the way that he operated. I'll give you another analogy because my wife told me the first one wouldn't work. Uh, if you're making a recipe and you gather all the ingredients on your counter, but you don't mix them, you don't heat them up, they're not, they're not a dish, right? There's the whole bunch of mess on your countertop. If you gather a whole bunch of knowledge about the scriptures together, but you don't put that into a system that makes sense for how you live your life, it will not be beneficial to you. Seek God's answers. Be in church be in Bible study, be in life group, hear the message again and again, but then work on installing it in your, heart, in your operating system. Work on thinking about it regularly. A couple ways you can do this, of course, is to take the message of the sermon and try to think about it every morning when you get up. Maybe to read a proverb every day and just meditate on that proverb all day. By the way, did you know that God wrote a 30-chapter book long a book of the Bible that tells you how to be smarter at life than anyone ever? And most of us don't read it. We could read the Proverbs and we could study that and we could understand how to implement this into our life. Seek God's answers. That's why I'm here. That girl who wrote me on Friday night, I stayed up late, past my bedtime, an hour just to write an answer back to her because I love that stuff. I will sacrifice almost anything in my life to give you answers, to help you seek God's answers. Put me to the test. Give me so much work that we have to call another pastor. Third, the church will not be a utopia. Habakkuk thought to himself, well, the church is, going to, is looking forward to the Messiah, and the only possible way I see to get to the Messiah is that the nation would continue and continue and continue and grow and grow and grow until, well, the Messiah comes and, you know, the kingdom of God comes. But God said, no, that's not actually how it's going to happen. I'm going to completely decimate the entire nation, and only a small remnant is going to remain, but that is the way that this is going to get done. Are we okay with that? Are we okay with that happening in our church? The Bible talks about trials that come on Christians that purge away dross. Dross is like on a precious metal, like gold or silver, the extra stuff like iron ore and things that are around it that you burn off. You put it in a really hot fire. And then after those things burn off, you have even more pure gold or silver or whatever the precious metal is. God says that happens to the church. And that the unfortunate thing, we're not happy about this, but the reality is when trials come on a church, when God wants to purify his church, people will fall away from the church but it will purify. It will purify faith. It will purify an understanding of the gospel. It will push away all the extra stuff that we've added on to being a church so that we focus on the one thing that is needful. How do we feel about that? In our business-minded, constant upward growth mindset of North American Christianity, we like to think that a church is doing good if it's growing. There's more people in church, there's more people in Bible study, there's more offerings in the plate, but God does not say those are necessarily good metrics. God says sometimes the most addition I can do is by subtraction. And so first of all, that should drive us back to the word and say the only way we're getting through any of this is that the righteous will live by his faith in the word of God. But also that we understand that even though things may look bad from the outside, God is doing something absolutely beautiful underneath all of it. 
in the same way that Judah was completely destroyed, but the Messiah still came through that line, through exile in Babylon, through the return back to Israel, through corrupt leaders and corrupt religious leaders. It all happened, and yet Christ still came, and Christ still died for your sins. Fourth, little deaths to stop a big death. Habakkuk experienced something that was not pleasant in his day. He watched the nation that he loved be destroyed right before his eyes, and he knew it was coming. It was almost worse because he knew it was coming, right? The reality is Christians have to struggle with losing things in life, and it can feel like a little death when you lose financial security or peace in your life, and you lose your health, when you lose a loved one, when you lose the path of life that you thought you were going to go down, it can feel like a little death. But God makes those little deaths happen. He allows them into our life so that we understand that there is a bigger death that he is trying to avoid for us. He's trying to put us on a path where those things don't distract us. Those things don't become our idols. He's going to take them away from us so that we have nothing left to look at but him. Often when we receive struggle in our life, we ask God, why? One of the most often given answers from God is so you trust me more. I'm going to take this away or I'm never going to let you have this so you trust me more. I hope we see our struggles that way. Then the last application, the ultimate reality. I said when we read Romans 1 that that quote, the righteous will live by faith, completely changed the world. In 1519, a monk from Germany named Martin Luther was wrestling with the scripture. He was wrestling with the righteousness of God. He read that phrase and he thought to himself that God demands righteousness. I need to be a good person. I need to live up to the standards of God in order to be loved by God and accepted by God. And he looked at his own life as a monk and thought, if anyone is righteous, it's me. But I still feel guilty all the time. How is it that I am going to stand against a God who says the wages of sin is death and that there is eternal punishment coming for sin when I don't even feel forgiven, when I can't find a place in the scripture that tells me I'm forgiven? How can I live if that's the gospel? And then he found these words. From Romans 1.17. The righteous will live by faith. And he remembered back to Habakkuk. He remembered the story of a man who saw impending complete destruction, but who was given a word by God, trust me, and I'll get you through it. And so you, Christian, you don't have the nation of Babylon bearing down on your doorstep, but you do have your death and the end of the world bearing down on you. It got 30 minutes closer while I've been talking. But you also have a word from God. It says you will live by faith. Your trust that Jesus Christ has died in your place, taken your sin, made you exempt from the punishment of eternal damnation, and has given you his righteousness, his perfection on your records, so when God sees you, he sees that you are perfect in his eyes. If you trust that your salvation is not dependent on your work, but dependent on God's work, if Christ was successful so that you were free to be a failure, if you trust that, you will make it through your death and the end of the world into eternal life forever. And Luther saw those words and finally understood them. He said he felt like he was altogether reborn, that life had really started for him. Like we sing in that one song that we love, uh, 
You're breathing, but not alive. But then when the gospel comes, it, it gives you new life. It, it makes you live as a, in a way that you've never lived before because you have that word that you can trust. You're bought, you're saved, you're redeemed. Now believe it, continue to believe it and you'll live. The righteous will live by faith. So let's wrap it up today with the words that Habakkuk wraps up his prophecy. He says in verse 19, the last verse of his prophecy, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. When he says deer, don't think of like our like pasture bound deer out here west of us. Uh, Think more of like a mountain goat. Deer in Palestine, in a mountainous area of Palestine, were famous for being able to run on the heights of mountains, which were the less stable parts of the mountains, where a human being, because of just the way we're built, we couldn't have stood as strongly as a deer could. In other words, God is, or excuse me, Habakkuk is saying, because God is my strength, I am able to walk through a situation that would cause most people to stumble and fall, but I will walk strong and secure and peaceful because the Lord is my strength. I know that no illness, no financial struggle, no relationship breakdown, no breakdown of governments or the world around me can stop the fact that my righteousness is given to me through faith. My status will never be changed. My acknowledgement from God can never be taken away from me. And I can go through everything knowing that. And then he finishes with these words. For the director of music on on my stringed instruments. It's just an editor's note, but it's interesting that it's included in the Bible. All scripture is useful for our learning. That's what Paul tells us through, the, through Timothy. So what do these words teach us? The place to start is worship. As you think about what God has done for you, one of the best ways to install it on your operating system is to worship. To take yourself out of the craziness, the white noise of the news cycle and your phone and all the different responsibilities you have outside these walls and for one hour sit here and be a little different. To have nothing required of you but everything being given to you. Take the time to turn off all the sounds and listen to one thing and focus on it for an hour. To sing. and How many of us sing in our regular lives? Music is one of the beautiful ways that God has wired us to put things into our memory. To stand and sit and do things that people would consider a little weird, but they take us out of the world that we have lived in and for a moment give us a visible manifestation of the glory that God has promised for us. And if you've ever practiced something for hours and hours and hours and eventually gotten good at it, You know that the first time it doesn't feel right. It may not feel right the second time. It may be a little uncomfortable the hundredth time, but as you continue to do it, it makes you really good at whatever you're practicing to do. And it can change the way you live. It can literally change your body composition. That's what worship can do. It can change your heart. It can install this on your operating system. So be here every Sunday. Encourage those who are not here to be here every Sunday, to hear this word, to believe it, and to grow in it. The world is sinful, and we're part of that, and God is going to destroy all of it. But because of the faith that he has given us through the gospel, we will live. That's God's word to you. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for preaching to us through Habakkuk. 
that in the many places of our life where we ask why, you have given us a word of promise that breaks through all of them. The righteous will live by faith, that we will live by faith, that our righteousness comes from faith from first to last. It is not our work, it is your work. And because of your work, we will be saved. We ask that you strengthen us in that with the many struggles that come through our lives and in our society right now. We ask those things in your name. Amen.